0: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Four years ago, New Yorker writer Jelani Cobb visited Newark, New Jersey's troubled police department, where there was little trust between the city's police force and black community. Now, as the killing of George Floyd has triggered mass protest and calls for racial justice and police accountability, Cobb has returned to Newark to see if the department, which implemented several reforms, has really changed. His new documentary with Frontline, Policing the Police 2020, premieres next week. Cobb joins us next on Forum after this news. This is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. In a new frontline documentary, historian and journalist Jelani Cobb returns to Newark, New Jersey's police department to see if anything has changed as protests calling for racial justice and police accountability in the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor continue.
1: The angry tableau in the streets is a reckoning with the fact that in this country, race is a shorthand for a set of life probabilities. The odds are different in black America of dying of COVID, of being poor, of being incarcerated, of being abused or even killed by the police.
0: Frontlines Policing the Police 2020 premieres September 15th on PBS. Jelani Cobb, welcome to Forum. Thank you. So this film is a sequel of sorts from 2016 when you first visited Newark's police department as it was about to undergo big reforms with help from the federal government. Was it always the plan to do a sequel to follow up?
1: No, it was not the plan to do a sequel. Um, It was just our uh, good fortune that uh, everyone in Newark was open to us continuing the conversation and the dialogue, uh, especially as events caught up with us and made it more pertinent. Uh, So one of the things that happened was that in the aftermath of George Floyd's terrible, tragic death, the film, the first film um, rocketed up in terms of the number of people watching it. And So we realized that uh, there was a lot of interest. And one of the things people wanted to know is what became of it. There had been, uh, we were filming then at the very outset of this process. So it, it seemed like a natural development to go on to see the Um, the culmination of kind of how things have gone in the last four years.
0: Yes. So what became of it, meaning what kinds of things were happening in Newark's police department? What kinds of reforms were they implementing?
1: So um, in order to talk about the reforms that they were implementing, we have to kind of do some backstory, which is that uh, in 2014, when Ferguson happened, there and the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, there had been this a big conversation about how policing could be reformed. Uh, the Obama administration began the the meetings around the 21st century, the the task force on 21st century policing, uh, state and local <laughs> police departments. This was the conversation, and that was mm-hmm. framed the context for us going to Newark uh, in the first place. And so, when uh, the incoming mayor had been elected, you know, Ras Baraka. Uh, he had a lot of ideas he wanted to talk about um, what we now what advocates are now we're calling defund the police but uh, he was talking about really decentering them back then uh, and uh, making them just one part of a complex of responses to community needs and uh, one of the things that we saw then was the idea that not all uh, community violence needed a police response or certainly what police are equipped to do doesn't mm-hmm. cover the entire spectrum of a community's needs as it relates to violence. Uh, and the idea of one of the groups, the really important groups that is in the film, the Newark Community Street Team, that was still uh, on the drawing board you know, at the time that we were there. And so uh, the, the short version of it is that they wanted to both decrease the likelihood of police using force. uh, And they were aware that it was entirely possible for an incident like the one in Ferguson to take place uh, in their city. And they wanted to create policies that would decrease the likelihood of that. And at the same time, uh, enhance the kind of broad palette of ways that they respond to community needs.
0: And so, I mean, in that time, what has happened, right? In addition to both At the Newark Police Department, like whether or not these reforms have been successful and this reframing, as you you say, that the mayor wanted to do in terms of really kind of treating a lot of the issues that were happening in the community and crimes that were being committed as more like public health issues. Um, You also point out that the federal government, especially under President Trump, has also basically made investigating police for civil rights violations A much lower priority if a priority at all and I'm curious if you included that because you saw those two things kind of working together or at odds against each other and contributed to where Newark is right now
1: yeah so there there were two dynamics going on you know the on the local level uh, there were the reforms that Newark was undertaking uh, as part of a consent decree, which was a, a, an agreement with the Obama DOJ to institute particular approaches to reforming their police department. And so that had all been negotiated and agreed upon before uh, the 2016 election. Uh, after the election, uh, a very different DOJ uh, came into place and they deemphasized, greatly deemphasized police reform. Uh, and, you know, both uh, Jeff Sessions and uh, Bill Barr, the two attorney generals in this administration, have said similar comments about uh, skepticism, uh, if not outright disbelief at the idea that uh, there were systemic reforms needed, and uh, very much of the mindset that there may be occasionally a, a rogue officer or an officer who's problematic. But, uh, entire departments don't function that way. And uh, that was one of the prerequisites for the consent decree program, which was that the, the DOJ has oversight over chronically problematic, uh, troubling police departments uh, where there is a history, or as they say, a pattern of practice
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, of uh, excessive use of force or, you know, kind of array of different things that could land you in consent decree territory. And now what made that more complicated was the fact that uh, as the DOJ was saying that they don't believe that such police departments exist, there were lots of police chiefs who were saying that they in fact think their departments qualify for this. Uh, And that was one of the things I think that we were most surprised uh, about. Uh, We expected to anticipate, uh, to encounter uh, a kind of universal disdain or at least universal uh, disagreement uh, with the idea that departments could be systemically plagued with problems coming from police chiefs. Uh, And that wasn't what we got. Like in some instances, there were police chiefs who were saying, we welcome uh, the federal uh, intervention if it helps us uh, create a better relationship with the communities that we're responsible for protecting and serving.
0: Yes. It's interesting, though, you do have this really powerful moment with an activist named Larry Ham during mm-hmm. your uh, during your visit to newark. and uh, and he's actually describing the killing of George Floyd. He's describing, and I'm going to play a little bit of this. He's describing the look on Officer Derek Chauvin's face while he had his knee on George Floyd's neck. And why? For Ham, the look on his face was the most disturbing part of the video of the killing.
3: That's the beauty and the curse of social media. You see a video, everyone loses their mind. This was a man that had no worries about what he was doing. Mm. He looked straight at the cameras. He wasn't worried about no cameras. You know why? Because they know that 99% of police brutality cases don't end in a conviction. See, when it's clear to
1: them that there will be an immediate price to pay for unjustly taking the lives of human beings and unjustly brutalizing people that you're gonna lose your badge, you're gonna lose your gun, you're gonna lose your job, you're gonna lose your pension and you might lose your freedom
3: if you're convicted. When they understand that, I guarantee you that there will be a precipitous decline in police brutality cases in the United States.
0: So given that comment by Ham and what you just said about how the police chiefs you spoke with were were sort of welcoming of some federal help or even the consent decree process, potentially, right? I I guess I wonder how much really changed in Newark with the help of federal support and oversight. If he's talking about, yeah, (laughs)
1: Yeah, so that's a kind of complicated question. And I don't mean that to, uh, you know, fence it or anything. Uh, but the fact is that Newark and the uh, the federal monitor is trying to determine exactly that right now. Uh, mm-hmm. And the metrics they use are uh, community surveys as well as uh, they. one of the things that the consent decree mandates is really meticulous record-keeping about Uh, the interactions that police have with the community, especially uh, those that involve use of force. And so they're in the midst of crunching those numbers now. Uh, One of the things that we see is like tentatively, uh, there's been, uh, you know, still significant amount of force being used um, by the police department, but they've also seen uh, a uptick in community relations. And so we got that anecdotally, with people who we talked to in Newark, saying that things were uh, considerably considerably better than they were four years ago, um, but we also uh, got saw that there was a, a some indication of a, a more trusting relationship between the community and the police, as revealed by their surveys. Uh, and so, but that that's all kind of a a thumbnail uh, view of it, and a much more uh, full portrait, I think, will be emerging in the next year or so as they get through. Uh, I see. Their their metric process.
0: Yes, and that makes sense. I I think, I mean, of course, Ham is talking about um, a completely different police department here, right? We're talking about George Floyd. We're talking about Derek Chauvin. We're not necessarily talking about Newark, but he is also really pointing to the systemic issues that are also the questions that I think you are asking in your documentary. We're talking with Jelani Cobb, staff writer at The New Yorker, and a correspondent for Frontline, his new film with Frontline is Policing the Police 2020. It'll premiere September 15th on PBS at 9 p.m. here. And I'd like to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation if you have questions for Jelani Cobb about the documentary, about policing and what it will take to reform police departments what kinds of reforms you would like to see the number 866-733-6786 again 866-733-6786 you can also reach us on twitter or facebook at kqed forum or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org i'm mina kim stay with us We're talking with Jelani Cobb, who four years ago made a film with Frontline on race and policing and reform in Newark. And now he's gone back to Newark in the wake of George Floyd's killing to see if anything has changed. Cobb is a historian at Columbia Journalism School who has written about issues of race and policing for the New Yorker for years. And we invite you, our listeners, to join us if you have questions for Jelani Cobb. 866-733-6786 is the number. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. And Jelani Cobb, on this question of defunding the police one of the things that i was struck by was you were speaking with one of the people who is um responsible for implementing reforms at newark who said actually you know what reform costs a lot of money (laughs) and so i I wondered what your reaction was to that
1: that was one of the uh, more significant insights of the film i think and so in the conversation about defunding police Uh, There's been uh, a conversation about kind of offloading uh, money from their budgets to other outlets and other uh, entities that can do uh, different kinds of functions as it relates to communities. Um, And there's a long history of that idea, which I can come back to. But one of the things that Peter Harvey pointed out uh, in our conversation was that You don't necessarily want to take money away from police departments at the point where you realize that you need money for training, uh, if that's part of it, Uh, you need uh, money for oversight. Uh, You need, and one of the things that he pointed to in Newark uh, significantly was you need money for uh, better record-keeping mechanisms that will allow you to know exactly what your officers are doing and when they're doing it. And those kind of systems uh, cost in the millions of dollars. And so uh, he was making the argument that, at least in some instances, you may have poor policing precisely because departments don't have the kind of revenue that they need. Uh, and that brought to to mind a different thing, which is there are 18,000 police departments uh, in the United States. We tend to talk about uh, the largest of them. Uh, LAPD, Chicago PD, uh, NYPD, uh, and then, you know, some of, you know, still significantly sized cities, you know, Atlanta, you know, Philadelphia and so on. Uh, but most police departments are, are far smaller than that and have far smaller budgets than that. Uh, and so you know, defunding the, the police in a small midnight-sized city or smaller may not get you uh, closer to the objective of having a police department that has uh, a kind of broad understanding of its responsibilities to the community and uh, upholds them in a way that doesn't Uh, exacerbate the tensions or in worst case scenarios uh, cost somebody their life under circumstances where it should not have.
0: Well, let me go to some callers and I'll go to Joshua in Alexandria. Hi, Joshua.
4: Hello. Hi. Can you hear me?
0: I can. Go right ahead.
4: Uh, Hey, Uh,
3: hey, uh, I thought this is a really interesting conversation. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, I'm sure you guys know of implicit bias training and how people can pretty much take a test and determine, like, if they have a bias towards a certain group of people. Um, Is there any police, I guess, organizations police, I don't know what you would call it, but that, like, implement this? And then is there, like, a way that this could be implemented on a larger scale? And would that help? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that people would just, like, get used to, like, answering these questions but not really change their views? I don't know.
0: Thanks, Joshua. I mean, Jelani Cobb, meaningful implicit bias training happening at departments?
1: Sure. I mean, their departments doing implicit bias training. But so one of the things that um, we have to keep in mind is this, and going back to the comment about the, the previous question, is that there really is a staggering array of different police departments and kinds of police departments in the United States. Uh, and so you have entities that have been uh, interested in implicit bias, uh, even kind of going back 10 years. You've seen some departments that are more uh, open to having those kind of conversations and then other places where they just aren't. Uh, and so it's a kind of hit or miss uh, dynamic. Uh, one of the things that you're seeing a lot of in Newark when we were there was a real um, serious emphasis on the letter of the law and you know what police are allowed to do under what circumstances they are allowed to do it and so on. Uh, and I think that that was a hope of saying that if you are following the letter of the law, then you should at least mitigate uh, what your individual biases might be. Um, But there there are different approaches to it, but the short answer to it is that, yes, some departments have been uh, interested in and invested in this question of implicit bias for a while now.
0: And, you know, you referred to this notion that police are acting within the law, and since they're acting within the law, that the kind of anger and frustration that's directed at them or this idea that they're operating outside of it is a misconception. And one of the people that you spoke with that really laid this down was James Stewart, president of the Newark Mm -hmm. Police Officers Union. And I want to play a clip from that exchange that you had with him.
3: That's the beauty and the curse of social media. You see a video, everyone loses their mind. He can't do that. He can't do this. Well, maybe he actually can. You know, maybe the law, maybe why so many cops are not convicted, which is, you know, part of the uproar, is because they actually acted within their rights
0: and within the law based on what occurred at that time. First, what was your reaction to that interview with James Stewart?
1: Uh, well, I'd interviewed him previously, so I wasn't surprised by that argument. Uh, he'd made similar arguments in our earlier conversations, uh, but I think that it was kind of where you stand is <laughs> how you see a particular question. Uh and he's the president of the police union. So he was talking about what is within police officers' rights, uh, what are the things that they can do. And I was pointing to a bigger question and and quite frankly, what uh, people can do legally is to some degree a reflection of his influence and or, influence of uh, organizations similar to his in terms of lobbying for the broadest Kind of leeway for police behavior, uh, and that has had some significant effect over the course of you know you know years and decades. Uh, and so, pointing to that, saying, "Oh, okay, well, you know, we actually are allowed to do that." Uh, I raise the counterpoint to that, saying uh, that may well be the case, but I think people are looking at this and asking if an officer should, in fact, be able to use force under these circumstances.
0: Yes, uh, and <laughs> so and changes so, need to be yes. made to the law,
1: <laughs> right?
0: Um, well, Thomas writes, why not investigate law enforcement training more and stick with that? That is where a lot of the justification for police violence comes from and where we need to focus attention for serious change. I mean, you did ask this question like, is the training good? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, are the training programs effective?
1: Yeah. And so. <laughs> That's the other thing. I, I hate for everything here to, to be contingent, uh, <laughs> lots of contingencies, but we're talking about a huge sprawling right. subject. And so if you talk about the training, I, I once again have to say it depends uh, because there is training, uh, You know, there are some really, really problematic types of training that uh, officers receive about uh, kind of cultivating a warrior mindset uh, as a police officer. That is not what you need. You know, we've had a militarization of our police departments and uh, overlooking the fact that the police and the military serve fundamentally different purposes in a society. Uh, And so uh, one of the reasons I think that we have the reliance uh, on use of a firearm to resolve any problem is is that um, at the same time, if you want to educate people out of those ideas, out of those habits, then you have to actually uh, pay for a different type of training, which is one of the things that Peter Harvey, Harvey also pointed out. The uh, federal monitor who oversees the consent decree in Newark. Uh, one of the things he also pointed out was that you you know you have to actually pay to undo the bad habits that have been ingrained in a department. Uh, And so, you know, training gets you part of the way. Uh, I don't want to make it seem like training is a panacea because it's not. I don't think anybody thinks that it is. Uh, But uh, it's one of the mechanisms, one of the uh, aspects of this bigger conversation.
0: So what did you find from your deeper dive in the Newark Police Department that you feel like can be applied broadly in terms of lessons or, I I mean, I don't even know if there's anything really with regard to practices, but just insights, I guess, from that
1: process. Oh, certainly. Um, we. So I think that it's it's interesting, interesting, it's enlightening rather to see both of those films back to back because we went out with police in the gang unit in 2015, 2016, and you know, they were tackling pedestrians on the street. And I don't say that uh, as an exaggeration, they're literally instances of people walking down the street, and the next minute they're flat on their back with four cops on top of them with no real provocation uh, other than they live in a community that is uh, known for high amounts of crime or known for drug trafficking. Uh, and that essentially means that just by virtue of, of Your zip code or by virtue of your income level, which really determines where you're going to be living, you may or may not be tackled by the police as you're walking down the street. Uh, And uh, that unit was disbanded shortly after the first film um, was completed. And now there's a much, well, so when I said the letter of the law, there's much more of an emphasis on that uh, in terms of what allows you to pull someone over, what allows you to search someone, what are the circumstances, what, you know, what, what constitutes a reasonable suspicion. Um, uh, even down to the line of uh, one of the things, examples that Peter Harvey gave was that uh, people believe that you can, if you are surveilling a person and you see them put an object uh, into the garbage that looks like uh, material evidence of a crime, you can just wait for them to sit the garbage on their sidewalk and then go uh, rummage through it to get that evidence. Uh, and, and if you are a federal law officer, you can do that in the state of New Jersey. If you are a state or municipal police officer, you cannot. <laughs> and you know those particular distinctions about uh, how you enforce the law uh, and really requiring that you first actually know what the law is, uh, has been a real fundamental emphasis in Newark.
0: Well, let me go to Drew in Oakland. Hi, Drew, join us.
3: Hello, thank you. And Delaney, we appreciate the work you do. Um, thank you. Listen, um, coming out of Oakland, California, I've seen uh, the police department go on the federal decree, and they've been on it for a long time. I don't even know if they're out of it. No, but no. until we find a way to have police accountable outside of their group. In other words, some people other than the police have to have their fingers inside the monitoring of the activities of the police department. So somebody like a committee uh, with the ACLU and the city attorney, district attorney, someone who doesn't have to rely upon the police, like the DA to bring charges because they are too cozy. So until you start to break down the police culture where they have to be accountable in use of force, has to be reviewed on a monthly basis, creating that culture of accountability they're going to continue, and also the the laws have to be changed so that they have some level of responsibility now we don't we're not looking for perfect police officer, but we want to see some progress in a database that shows the ones who who uh, were given opportunities to course correct and didn't but just walk to the next city over and get hired because there's no sort of accounting of their activities in another jurisdiction so until we break into that uh, uh, bulwark, if you will, that this we remain the same. It'll just be good talk, a good um, amount of you know exercising. Oh my God! And we pray for the best or whatever. But changes won't come.
0: Drew, thanks. I mean, are you thinking like civilian oversight, that kind of thing? When you say an outside entity?
3: Oh, absolutely. You need to have a civilian oversight. Look, when the police chiefs are dealing with uh, their their Rank and file, they know they just wait out the police chief. They might last for three or four years. Somebody who comes in as a reformist, they just sit it out because the police department, the folks that are there, they're 20, 30 year people. The chiefs of the police department, how long they last? What, three to four years? See, they just wait them out. Oh, that's the new flavor of the month. But if you bring in an oversight committee, some outside people who look at it on a, on a monthly basis to sort of change the behavior and also, you know, promote the things that are good. Not everything is bad that happens with the police department. So you have to have a mixture of we're promoting good stuff and we also hold an account for things that we want to see change.
0: Drew, thanks. Uh, Jelani Cobb, would you like to comment on Drew's point?
1: Sure. Uh, I mean, I think I agree with a lot of what Drew said, but I think that it might be um, a bit too broad, painting with too broad of a brush. And the reason I say that is that you do have improvements in some departments. And, And so I think that it is possible for some substantial change to occur. Now, I do agree with virtually everything he said in terms of the reforms that are needed to happen. Uh, but in the interim, the consent decree process actually does make a difference sometimes. Uh, it is not a perfect tool. Uh, it is hit or miss. And, uh, but you have some departments that go through the consent decree uh, process and come out uh, with a, a new approach to the communities that they work in. And some that just kind of languish and go on and on and on. And uh, in addition to the consent, the, excuse me, the civilian oversight portion of it, there is uh, the question that he was talking about in terms of, of disciplinary record and people being able to be hired in other police departments. Uh, that's part of what's in uh, the George Floyd uh, uh, bill that's being debated in Congress now. Uh, And that would create a national database of police use of force incidents so that you wouldn't be able to do uh, what we've seen happen, for instance, in the Tamir Rice case, where one department says that this person should not be on the force, and uh, he simply leaves and goes to another department where he shoots a 12-year-old. And so that kind of of dynamic, uh, I think, will be best approached on the the national level uh, in terms of response to it.
0: Well, thanks, Drew, for that call. Let me go to Anika in San Francisco. Hi, Anika.
4: Hi there. Um, Thank you so much for this uh, discussion. Um, My question really is on, you know, the the concept of real reform. Um, I've seen it. I've seen that word tossed around in major school districts, and it it never, reform never works. And, And so if I think about, like, an alcoholic and you send an alcoholic to a rehab station, then, you know, rehab place, they come out. Unless they really go through the 12 steps and they have a spiritual awakening as a human being, there is no reform. And so I'm looking at, you know, what, 90 percent of the police force are are folks that, you know, don't have the background in education. The training doesn't take as long as like a hairdresser. I mean, we all know this. So, So the concept of reform, like, do you really believe that reform is possible versus, you know, starting from scratch and a whole new paradigm shift? Anika, thanks.
1: Um, I think that we need a new paradigm of policing. Um, One of the things, one of the most troubling things, I think, that we saw in the aftermath of George Floyd's death in terms of how police responded to the protests in their communities was that there does not seem to be a fundamental understanding among very many police officers, very many police departments, that they actually work for the public. They don't work for the police department uh, or for the fraternal order of police. That they work for the public, on the behalf of the public. Uh, but the kind of impunity with which they dispense force and brutality and a whole array of other things does not suggest people who are humbled at the thought of being public employees. That said, Uh, reform is necessary because new paradigms don't come about overnight. And when you talk with people, we spent, uh, at this point, probably close to two years of conversations with people in Newark, uh, in various strata of Newark, uh, in middle-class communities, in the housing projects, uh, in apartment complexes that are somewhere in between, and, and The spectrum of it was that the vast majority of those people are not in favor of police abolition.
0: (laughs) More with Jelani Cobb. After the break, we're talking about his new frontline film, Policing the Police 2020. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Jelani Cobb about his new Frontline documentary, which asks, can policing be done differently? And is there the will to make the change? Which was what you were getting into, Jelani Cobb, just before the break. Cobb is a staff writer at The New Yorker. He's the author of The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama, and the Paradox of Progress. And he teaches in the journalism program, at Columbia University, and your listeners are with us, the number 866-733-6786 to join the conversation, again 866-733-6786, email address forum at kqed.org, you can also post comments and questions on Facebook and Twitter at KQED Forum. Sheila writes, I just want to say how much I enjoy Mr. Cobb's thoughtful, intelligent writing, and thought he was great in the film 13th. I admire the work he's doing right now and am thrilled to hear him on the program." Thank you. Um, In addition to this documentary, I understand that you are also working on a second frontline documentary, Jelani Cobb, uh, titled Whose Vote Counts, which is exploring allegations of voter fraud and disenfranchisement in the 2020 election. And I I couldn't help but notice that at the same time that I heard this, that you just did a New Yorker piece on election-related violence and how Mm -hmm. there's nothing new about destruction related to political antagonism, but I'm wondering if history is a guide, are you concerned about um, violence, this election, that the conditions are ripe for that?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm very concerned about that. Uh, It's one of the things that uh, I've been thinking about and not wanting to maybe project my own uh, paranoia or concern out into the public. Uh, But then I started hearing uh, really sober-minded Uh, analysis or analysts who were saying similar kinds of things. Uh, And uh, in the piece I wrote for The New Yorker, I talked about the Transition Integrity Project uh, and their report, which laid out uh, four scenarios in which violence was possible to probable. Uh, And this is something I think that we should all be concerned about. Um, But we've been seeing a kind of escalating tide of violence uh, as it over the course of the last four years, uh, partly in response to the rhetoric that we're hearing in, you know, in our politics. And so, uh, oh, there's some sort of relationship, uh, symbiotic relationship between those two things. And so looking at the tensions and the passions in November, looking at the complexities of casting a ballot in the midst of the pandemic. And the fact that we may well not know who has won the election on November 3rd, uh, but it may take days, if not weeks, to determine that. And that leaves the space of indecision, leaves a lot of space for people's passions to tip over into uh, violent displays in a way that we've seen uh, over, uh, especially, you know, even in just this past year. Uh, So, yes, that is something I think a lot about. And uh, certainly there are deep roots of political violence in this country. Uh, who that we should be looking at and reexamining for what it might tell us about the present?
0: There was talk too about a greater law enforcement presence at voting sites as well. I mean, I don't know what potential that has, but if you feel like that could play a role in what your concerns are,
1: yeah, I think that's kind of the overlap between the two conversations with the, the two films, uh, you know, about policing and about uh, the possibility of casting a ballot. And the potential obstacles to it in 2020, uh, but you know, police at the polling place uh, would not be a good development for many communities where uh, there's a great deal of distrust, uh, fear, and antagonism uh, between the communities and the, the police forces. Uh, it would be there have been uh, robocalls going out telling people that uh, if they have uh, outstanding warrants or any kind of uh, situation. Uh, the police will be checking your record before they allow you to vote. Uh, That is not true. Uh, That is never true. Uh, But things like that might make people afraid to come out to the polling place. Uh, And so uh, there are all these things that are both formal and informal that can curate or shade uh, what the electorate actually looks like.
0: Let me go now to Jerry in Vallejo. Hi, Jerry.
1: Hi
3: how are you?
0: Well, what's on your mind Thank you. Um, my question is this:
3: why can't we have an independent commission that inv- that can investigate any elected official that violates a citizens' rights or any gov- uh, government employee, police officer, congressman or uh, even an electoral board that tries to you know like keep people from voting?
0: Uh, jerry thanks jelani cobb
1: well i mean i think that that's part of what is going on in newark uh they're trying to create a a civilian review board with subpoena power and disciplinary power and the police department or rather the police union is fighting back against that saying that the specifics of the new jersey state constitution prohibit such an entity um, from having the authority of the state and so that only uh, a DA or a prosecutor, like or or official mechanisms, uh, would be responsible, or have the the internal affairs in the police department uh, would have the ability to mete out discipline as a result of it. Uh, you know, but I I think in reality that's a good idea. I think that's one of the things that people need. And uh, I would also add to that that uh, a lot of people have been advocating a outside prosecutor look at any instance in which a police officer has used force, uh, because as an earlier caller said, the relationship between DAs and police officers is often far too cozy. Uh, DAs depend upon police to gather evidence and make the cases uh, for them to prosecute. Uh, And so there's a built-in conflict of interest in terms of that body uh, being able to give oversight to police themselves.
0: Well, let me read a few more comments. Mike writes, I see the war on drugs is a major part of the problem. Asking the police to focus on drugs puts police in situations they don't belong in, makes their job more dangerous, and leads to distrust from the community. It also leads to raids that often end up with the suspect and bystanders dead. John writes, what I think we need is positive incentives, not just negative. My suggestion is that we hire a credible independent organization to rate police departments and give extra pay each year to police departments for operating well I don't know if you have any thoughts on either of those comments, Jelani Cobb.
1: No, those are interesting ideas, though, Um, uh, particularly the latter. I hadn't thought about that. Um, But uh, I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, bad policing has been incentivized. And uh, certainly one of the things when we talk about the war on drugs and people saying that we need to end the war on drugs, uh, we understand the war on drugs to be a particular set of policies uh, as it related to incarceration and so on uh, of people who are uh, low level drug offenders and, and, and so forth. But the real difficulty in uprooting something like the war on drugs would be removing that incentive structure. There are police departments that are able to finance themselves solely on drug interdiction. Uh, and if you remove that as an impetus, you have to come up with some other way uh, of these departments, uh, figure out what it is they're supposed to be doing on behalf of the public.
0: Well, let me go next to Mallie in Santa Rosa. Hi, Mallie.
4: Hi there. Well, thank you so much for uh, covering this very important topic. Actually, I'm in Sonoma, not Santa Rosa. I want to talk about framing the argument. The argument here is that I see, I hear folks using defunding the police phrase. And I actually, as a Democrat, I have a little bit of a issue. I think it's not defunding. It is reforming. And that's why you see Trump and his cronies who fail uh, the American people and to, to protect them. They're using that against Democrats. And they uh, they are a master of framing the argument when they were defunding the uh, children. They called it No Child Left Behind. So I want to sort of ask you, please call it reform, but not defunding, because now people are abusing this and selling it to their constituents as that there's going to be no police department you're not going to be safe. So I'm hoping that the media more frequently uses reform phrase rather than
0: defund. Well, Mally, thanks. I mean, that is sort of a terminology question, Jelani Cobb, but in terms of the term defunding, whether it's more galvanizing or more of an easy political target for Republicans.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, here's the thing about the defund the the police language. Um, The first people I've ever heard say uh, that the police should be defunded in the sense that we're talking about it now were police officers, i would heard that in Newark. i heard that from various police officers I've talked to in the course of doing my work. Uh, They feel like they are being deployed in situations that police are not equipped to handle. Uh, Mental illness is certainly one where we see the tragic outcomes. We just saw uh, the 13-year-old boy shot uh, in Salt Lake City, unarmed 13-year-old boy who was having a mental health crisis uh, and was shot multiple times by the police. That is just not a situation that you should be bringing a law enforcement person into. Uh, And if we think about it, it it doesn't make sense. We wouldn't call the police for someone having a heart attack uh, or someone uh, going into a diabetic coma or like any of those things. We wouldn't say that this is against the law. We need the police to intervene here. Uh, And so at at its heart, there's an idea that's not entirely that radical about it. Uh, And in fact, if you go to the Kerner Commission report, which is what I mentioned earlier when I said that defund has a long history, if you went to the Kerner Commission report, uh, which came out in 1968, uh, there's a paragraph in there where they talk about exactly that, saying that police are being used in situations where they should not be used, and it tends to exacerbate the tensions uh, between the departments and the communities that they are charged with serving. Uh, And so... I think we've gotten caught up in the specifics of the language as opposed to the particulars of the idea. Uh, If a uh, high-paid consultant uh, came up to a police department and said, "Uh, we would like for you to focus on your core competencies and we'll spin off all of these other responsibilities to agencies that can take them off your hands, that person would get a fat check and a round of applause. Uh they would be fundamentally talking about some of the same things that the defund movement is talking about.
0: Well, Mira writes, I'm a former clinical social worker trained over 30 years ago in Portland. At that time, part of the group I was training with formed a special unit that would go out with the police to respond, especially with mental health situations. It seemed to be very effective. Shabazz in Oakland joined us. Hi, Shabazz. Uh,
1: yes, good
4: morning. Um, uh, I, I wanted to make two comments. One of them is uh uh concerning the training that uh officers get when they enter uh into the force you know do they
1: do do they use um african american subjects or or posters or targets as their training and do they uh put emphasis on African Americans being the enemy of the police do the police enter into the community with an attitude of um of against them and and I've heard and I've seen many officers who are just lost with fear
4: hmm.
0: and, let me see if I can get Jelani yeah I mean Jelani Cobb any evidence of this that Shabazz yeah, is yeah. concerned with
1: yeah I mean we've seen those same things I think there was a story uh, in the past year where the police department was using uh, pictures of Colin Kaepernick uh, for target practice um, and so you know, certainly that is is problematic and troublesome. And uh, the issue of fear comes up again. And I've talked with police officers again about this, where uh, one of the things, one of the criteria that uh, came up, and, and this came up in Newark as well, was that they needed new criteria for hiring police. And one of the things they do not screen for in their hiring generally is fearfulness. And they're saying they want to be able to examine just how jumpy this person is. Uh, This is a person that's able to maintain their composure in in complicated, difficult situations. Uh, And right now, police departments are not screening for those sorts of things, and that may be one factor in why we see the outcomes that we see.
0: Well, Janet writes, it's my understanding that training has been improved without improving police behavior. How can we limit the role of police unions, which to my mind are maybe the largest part of the problem? They should only be involved in labor issues. Thoughts
1: on police unions? Sure, uh, I think that's true, and you know, training has its place. As I said earlier in the conversation, is not a magic um, solution to all of the problems that we confront um, as it relates to policing. But I think that the other part of it, um, as it relates to police unions, is difficult and entrenched. It's taken police unions about twenty-five or thirty years to create the situations that we've seen now. Uh, And, you know, one of the things that we see as a commonplace is that uh, police officers' records are not available to the public. Uh, And that just changed in New York State. Or that police are given 48 hours after a shooting before they have to give a statement about what happened. Uh, A luxury that police would not afford to someone who they were arresting for a shooting or investigating for a shooting. So there's a whole array of these things. I think that police unions certainly are uh, one of the complications that people have to deal with if we're going to have meaningful police reform in this country.
0: Well, Jelani Cobb, I know you need to leave us. You're filming another documentary today, and they're all waiting for you. But I do want to ask you one of the central questions, which is do we have the will to make change? And have you landed on an answer to that question?
1: Um, The the best answer I can come up with is sometimes. And in (laughs) some places. There are... uh, instances where people have the will to do it and they're invested in it and then unfortunately far too many places where they don't
0: Jelani Cobb, thank you so much for joining us thank you the documentary is policing the police 2020 it premieres on pbs september 15th thanks to blanca torres for producing this segment and now as we head into the weekend, we have another installment from our series, The Music Getting You Through 2020. We're playing one song every Friday through December, and this song was sent to us by Chin in San Francisco.
2: One of the songs getting me through this year is Su Lee's Alge's Dance. The music video says it's a soundtrack for Mendo Breakdown, and I was like, yeah, I can relate. When you listen to the song, it sounds really cheerful and lighthearted, but the lyrics are very nihilistic. I listen to this song and maybe shimmy my shoulders a bit as a way to deal with feeling hopeless or defeated. I don't know who to ask. Even Mr. Google's like bro, you need to figure this out on your own. On my own.
0: Listener Chin for sharing I'll Just Dance by Sue Lee. And if you want to hear all the songs listeners are recommending, you can check out and follow KQED's The Music Getting You Through 2020 playlist on Spotify. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. And our intern is Jameson Weiss. Our executive editor is Ethan toven Lindsay, And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the
4: Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.